murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. All right, we are back with true law stories. I've got Eric Hayden here. Eric, say hi. Hello, everybody. And we're going to talk today about two very crazy stories. One is the wrong person, wrong pacemaker story. It is crazy. And then we're going to talk also about a possible spine crime. It's a bait and switch surgery, as well as the changes in Florida's insurance laws, furthermore, and how the, or not, and, and mass torts and how they're going to affect all Floridians, all in this true law stories. Of course, this is brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the number one way to promote your business, your law firm, you, any, and even if it's a, a medical practice, is through client and patient stories. Go to VideoCaseStory.com and learn how we can collect, craft, and deliver those stories for you. All right, let's get started. And so, Eric, tell us a little bit about your practice. You are in Florida, right? Sure. Based in West Palm Beach, Florida, we're a civil trial law firm specializing in all plaintiffs' work. We do a lot of medical malpractice and really any other type of injury law, a lot of wrongful death, premises liability, some maritime cases, anything representing the injured people of, of actually nationwide, but, but anybody here. Awesome. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about, you do a lot of mal- medical malpractice? Yeah, it's a good portion of, of my practice. I'd probably say about half of what I do. The other half being auto, premises, wrongful death, maritime. And why? Why is what's different about medical malpractice? Because it's it's different than your typical car accident case, correct? Sure. It's different for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's some really boring reasons it's different. There's some procedural differences. So for your normal car accident case or slip, trip and fall, you can, if you want to just run right to the courthouse, fire your law, file your lawsuit and get going. Not the case for medical malpractice. Uh, before you do that for a medical malpractice case, you have to do something called the pre-suit process. And it's all dictated by Florida statute. Basically, you need to gather all the relevant medical records and information that you need. Then you need to hire your own expert, retain and pay your own expert who is a specialist in the relevant areas that your case is. They need to review all the records. They need to agree after reviewing that there's a reasonable basis to proceed with a medical malpractice lawsuit. They need to execute an affidavit saying those things. Then I need to write a big fancy letter called a notice of intent to initiate litigation and send that letter, the expert's affidavit, and all the relevant medical records and signed valid uh, releases for medical records to all of the potential defendants that we plan on suing. And then that starts this 90-day pre-suit process, and not until that process is over can we then file a lawsuit. Wow, that's a lot of work. Yes, it's a little bit of a barrier to entry and there's Florida's had that in place for some time now. And then once you get past that, even when you get to the actual lawsuit stage, it is medical malpractice cases are tough. They're time consuming, they're expensive. What you need, and we deal with this a lot because I, I talk to a lot of people. A lot of people call me, say, hey, I think I have a medical malpractice case. I try to spend the time to, because most of the time, it's not going to be something that we can move on just because it's such a it's such a tough bar to meet. You need to show that the care that was provided was below what we call the standard of care. 
And absolutely, there could always be better treatment, right? Somebody could always have gotten uh, another test. Uh, somebody could have made a quicker decision, something like that. There could, the treatment could have always been better. Uh, to, to win, to prevail in a medical malpractice case, you need to show not just that there could have been better treatment. You need to show that the treatment fell below the bare minimum standard of care. And that's uh, a lot of the times the thing we get hung up on. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's not because you just don't want everyone suing any, any doctor either. And so you've had you've had a lot of crazy things happen. I know we're going to talk about the RICO thing, but you had a case where just completely wrong person they put the wrong thing into. <laughs> yes, I handled the case for a woman was having some symptoms. She went into her primary care provider. They did something called a 24-hour halter monitor, which basically they hook her up with some sensors. She goes home. It tracks primarily her heart activity over a period of 24 hours, comes back, gives them the SIM card from this device, and then uh, a report gets generated by, it was an outside company that this primary care provider was using. And uh, when her report came back, uh, all the primary care providers were alarmed. It showed a very significant heart block with pauses and uh, just I'll just say some bad stuff on there. And so they said, you need to get into a specialist cardiologist yesterday. So they urgently transfer her over to a specialist. They send all the medical records to the specialist and say, this is her stuff. What do you think? And he says, oh, my gosh, you need to have a permanent pacemaker installed right now. Um, they end up doing the surgery. They surgically put the pacemaker in. Uh, my client was very diligent. She always got all her medical records. So the next time she went to her primary care provider, this is a few months after the surgery, they had her medical records waiting for her because she knew that was just her typical thing that she did. She'd always ask for copies of her stuff. Wow. She, she took them home. She's looking at them and she takes one look at the first page, the cover page of this Holter monitor report and says, this isn't me. This is for some guy in a different city who's treating with a different doctor. This is not me. So she takes it back and she's the one who found it. That, that was the crazy thing about this. It, it was missed by oh my God. many doctors. And the one who found it was my client, the patient. The case, you would think it'd be an open and shut case, right? Like the defense yeah. would say, you're right. It's the wrong record. We messed up. Let's get this thing resolved. But the this case was interesting because after after that happened, everybody found out it was the wrong report. All the defendants tried to say, actually, if you look at her correct report, even though it doesn't show what this report says, we think we did her a favor. We think that she actually <laughs> needed it anyways. So we're going to defend it on that basis. And the bulk of the case was me fighting against them and their experts to show that, no, she did not need it. That's revisionist history. You're just trying to say this now to protect yourselves. And it was an interesting case. We had the, the, the primary care provider was a party. The cardiologist was a party. And it was really just a systems failure inside the primary care provider. They weren't properly checking the, the reports that they would get from this outside company before uploading it to their patient charts. And this was a disaster waiting to happen. I would say so. Oh, my God, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take to resolve? So it probably took all in all, if you're talking about from when we first put all the parties on notice until the case actually resolved three years, three years. Yeah. Oh my God. And what, what happened to the woman over that time? And yeah. That's not like a little thing there that you messed up on. It's a pacemaker right next to your heart. 
Yeah, yeah. It's connected to, it's not just the generator, it's the leads that are connecting to different parts of your body. And somebody may ask, hey, why didn't you just have it taken out? And the, the, one, one of the big reasons is after a pacemaker is in your body for a certain amount of time, the leads start to embed themselves in what, what they're connected to. So a surgery, as more and more time goes by, becomes very risky to go in there and yank this thing out. So she made the decision. It just wasn't worth the risk to her. She would rather live with this foreign body inside of her that she doesn't want, doesn't need, has a scar, pokes out, all these other things, rather than risking having a surgery that was potentially very dangerous for her. It's not like she it was giving her 10 out of 10 pain every day, but it, it stuck out. She couldn't wear certain clothes. She couldn't wear a seatbelt comfortably. Uh, she knew it was a foreign metal body in there. She had to get it checked out every month or so to make sure it wasn't malfunctioning. It was just another thing. She had to sleep at night knowing that there's this thing in my body that's potentially sending electrical pulses through me that uh, I don't want and I don't need. And so it's just, what's that worth? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. And we all, I don't know. I don't ask always for my medical records every time I go everywhere. Do you? You probably do. <laughs> I don't. And we, we didn't try that case. It got close. It got very close. And one of the things that we were, we felt good about at trial is I think that's a lot of people's worst nightmare, that their doctor misses, that they rely on the wrong record, that their file gets mixed up with somebody else's and that the wrong decision gets made for that. So that we felt good about that. That's a, like a horror movie, or at least like shortly like a horror TV show episode. Yeah. It's like you wake up with someone else's arm on you, which is, is still less invasive than a pacemark maker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's crazy. And like we were saying, it's one of those weird things that happened. Doctors do make mistakes, but a bunch of doctors make mistakes, but no one like intended to do it. There was no like, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming no one intended to put a pacemaker in the wrong person, but you were talking there, there's, you have a case that's, it seems like there's a lot of intent going on. In medical yeah. malpractice. Yeah. So I like, like I was saying, all of our medical malpractice cases, I mean, there's just like every profession, there's good doctors, there's bad doctors, mistakes happen. That's what insurance is for. That's why we have a civil justice system. And my job is to represent people who are injured as a result when negligence, unfortunately, does occur. In all of those cases, there's, like you said, there's never intent. We're not talking about criminal acts here. This is just a doctor who, in this situation, their care fell below the standard of care. For the last few years now, I've been litigating the most unique medical malpractice case that we've ever had. It was basically, it's a group of plaintiffs, all of whom were operated on by the same surgeon. The pattern's similar. The people were all injured in some sort of accident. They all saw this surgeon. The surgeon all recommended surgery. And most of these surgeries, he was recommending a something called a fusion surgery. Some of them was to their cervical spine. Some of them was to their lumbar spine. But with a fusion, typically what is it's an open procedure, meaning they, they cut you open, they go in, they're installing some sort of hardware in your spine, whether it's one level or multiple levels to decrease the motion at that level to help alleviate your symptoms. And he was telling these people he was doing fusions. He was billing for fusions. Fusions. He was writing fusions as the surgery at the, in, the, in the title of the operative report that he was doing. He wasn't doing fusions. He was doing a type of procedure that he has admitted that is not taught anywhere, that nobody else does to his knowledge, that he essentially made up, that he does believe 
helps people, but he knows it's not a traditional fusion. Basically, what he's doing is he's whipping up some bone graft and squirting it into a certain area of something called the facet joint and hoping that it provides a little more stability. But it is certainly not a fusion. And it's certainly not what he was telling these people. So we have a group of people who thought they had a fusion procedure. A lot of them, the reason they got to me was because a lot of them continued to have pain after the surgery, no doubt, because the experts that we've spoken with this about, they said there is 0% chance this procedure that he was doing was going to help these people. There was 0% chance it was going to provide any stability, fuse anything, do anything. So a lot of them continue to have pain. Uh, They would see another surgeon, the surgeon would say, hey, let's, why don't you go get an MRI? Let me see what's going on in there. And then we'll talk about what your options are. They, the MRIs would come back and they'd be like, there's no fusion. There's no hardware. There's no bone. There's no bone added. There's no anything. I don't see evidence of, in some cases, any surgery that was performed. So that's the basis of the, the this weird pattern of medical malpractice that we've been dealing with. That's crazy. And yeah, obviously, it's pretty obvious that, that it should be a criminal act. But how often are medical malpractice considered a criminal act? Almost never. This is the only one I've ever... And, and again, this is not... It's not criminal. So the RICO side of it that we're dealing with, it's the civil RICO statute. Oh, gotcha. So it's, it's not a criminal act, but I can say that I've never handled a case like this where the doctor knew he was not doing traditional fusions and but was telling people that's what he was doing, that's what he was billing for, and that's what he was titling his operative reports and, and all. I'm not an attorney, but, and I know you're not a criminal defense attorney or a prosecutor, but if I were to sell you anything and I gave you something completely different, I'd probably go to jail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's some intricacies that they're going to use to defend this and say that why he was justified in doing what he was doing. But it's funny you you bring up it being a a crime. We had to explain before as part of the pre-suit process, we had to retain our own experts to take a look at this for us. And there was a theme. We had more than one and we spread it out. Like I said, we have multiple plaintiffs. We didn't use just one expert to review everything. We wanted to make sure because this was too weird to be true, almost. Yeah. So we had multiple experts that we sent these this to and, and very conservative practitioners, people from some of the most reputable uh, hospitals and teaching universities across the country. And more than one of them came back with this exact phrase. They took a look and they said, this is this is spine crime. That's what this is. And that it's, that is the, when there was a, there was an article that came out and we initially filed the lawsuit and one of the, one of the local papers here. And that was the, that was the title of the article, spine crime here, even though there is no criminal charges, everything it's essentially, that's what was going on. Wow. Wow. It's just, it's, this is like the fiction is, in fact, it's stranger than fiction. A a doctor thinks, oh yeah, I'm going to do this instead. And not tell you about it. Yeah. Uh, oh my god. Oh, that's so scary. And you were mentioning a few other stories you have before the show. Yeah, yeah. So t- getting away from the shock and awe part of it, because that's like I said, it's an outlier. Usually, not handling really weird cases like that. A lot of what I handle, like I said, apart from the medical malpractice, is a lot of auto cases. And the way we've been able to get some good results for people on cases that some people may think are small cases is using something called the proposal for settlement. It's provided for in the rules of procedure. It's a tool that we have at our disposal. And what you do is uh, at any point after a, a point early on in the case, you can file something called a proposal for settlement. 
it is essentially you're making a demand to the other side to settle the case, but you're not doing it in a letter or an email or a phone call. You're actually filing something with the court. You make the demand, you file it. They have 30 days to respond. If they don't accept it, then it's expired. Case keeps going. You keep going to trial. If the case doesn't settle otherwise and you go to trial, the, the cool thing about these proposals for settlement is if you go to trial and you get a verdict of at least 25% more than the amount that you filed your proposal for, that means the defendant, a lot of times an insurance company that we're dealing with, they're responsible for paying not just what the jury awarded the plaintiff in the case. They're responsible for paying whatever my firm's attorney's fees and costs are. Now, that's really good for my clients because we don't, as, as a plaintiff's attorney, I don't bill by the hour. I don't send my clients an invoice. I don't bill my time for them. My fee comes as a portion of whatever we're able to recover for them. So if I have an insurance company paying all or most of my fee, then that's a lot bigger net recovery that my client gets. And the reason it's there is to force defendants to, to really take a good solid look at a case early on the litigation. So you don't spend the waste of time and money litigating a case when really it should have been resolved earlier on. Um, and that's what it's there for. And we've been a, a lot of times they just, whether it's they want to drag it out, they don't want to pay attention to it that earlier on, they let these things expire at numbers that really the case is worth that, then they force us to litigate it for a couple of years. And now we're coming down to trial and we have an expired proposal for settlement under our belt. And it's a really good piece of leverage that I've used to get recoveries that even exceeded policy limits and exceeded clients' expectations. It's just a really cool tool that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And just in previous episodes too, there's all this change in insurance now in the state of Florida. And most people think it's just homeowner's insurance and it's just going to affect your home, but it's going to affect every every type of insurance claim, isn't it? Which part are you specifically referring to? Are you talking about the tort reform law? Yeah, the tort reform. Asked? Yes. So the tort reform law, not so much with insurance, but what that's going for, it's multifaceted. A lot of the things that affect what we do is it changes something called comparative negligence that we deal with. I don't know if anybody's brought this up before, but Florida has uh, for a long time been a pure comparative negligence state. Um, means it's pretty simple. Let's say uh, I have a slip and fall case. We go to a trial. It's possible for both the defendant to have been negligent. Their floor was unsafe. There was something that was wrong with it that they knew and they didn't fix, something like that. And it's also possible for the plaintiff to be negligent. They weren't paying attention. If they were paying attention, they should have seen whatever was on the floor. And the jury gets to decide. The jury doesn't just have to pick one or the other. They don't have to say, all right, it was all defendant or it was all plaintiff's fault. They get the opportunity to choose. So if they want to say, both of these people were at fault and we can split it by percentages. We think the defendant was 75% at fault and the plaintiff was 25% at fault. Or we think it was 50-50 or something. The jury gets to do that or has been able to do that in the state of Florida. And how that works is whatever the jury's total award is at the end of the trial, whatever percentage of negligence is placed on the plaintiff by the jury, the award just gets reduced by that amount pro rata. So it's pretty fair. What the new law did when they changed that is now it's more of a hybrid model where if the jury were to find that the plaintiff was over 50% at fault, so 51% at fault or more, plaintiff gets nothing. Whereas before, the plaintiff just got what it, it was just reduced by the amount of percentage that the jury found them negligent. So that's a big change. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of changes happening in the, in the state of Florida. This is amazing. And let's talk a little bit about if someone does need your help, if they have a medical malpractice case, 
How do they go about getting in touch with you? Yeah. So you can reach our office anytime at 561-689-8180. My email, I love when people email me directly, it circumvents the whole thing. You can always reach me at E Hayden. So E-H-A-Y-D-E-N at uh, S as in Sam, H-W hyphen law.com. So E Hayden at S-H-W hyphen law.com. And then uh, if you just Google our name, Schuler Weiser, you'll probably see our website should come right up. And the, the cool thing is we have, we employ three nurse paralegal investigators. These are people who worked in the healthcare field, some of them for over 20 years working as really high level nurses who now work in-house at our firm, help analyze, assess and work up these medical malpractice cases. I cannot tell you how valuable it is to have a really well-qualified nurse working with me on these cases. And we're lucky to have a lot of them here. That's amazing. That's really cool. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your stories and, and all that craziness on True Law Stories. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. And thank you all for taking Eric and I on your journey. This has been Ian Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need Video Case Stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.